0: From Radio 720 WGN Chicago, it's time for Extension 720. Here's your host, Milt Rosenberg.
1: We are honored tonight to have as uh, one of our two guests a very distinguished figure and a man who knows a great deal about the history of the Cold War because he was right there alongside his father as his father was helping to wage the Cold War from the Soviet side. Uh, my guest is Sergei N. Khrushchev. Uh, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, who has already done a number of very important works, uh, including a a book already on his father, the one titled Khrushchev on Khrushchev. And now we have a new book, Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower. It is just published by Penn State Press. Our other guest is a distinguished American scholar of Soviet and Russian history, namely John Bushnell, who uh, has done... uh, A great deal of work and is a reliable informant as to the history of the Soviet side of the Cold War and also uh, a very valuable resource for an examination of contemporary Soviet politics. But gentlemen, if I may, I'd like to start with a particular date, the date of March 5th, 1953. Uh, That is the day that Joseph Stalin died. Uh, And indeed, uh, Sergei Khrushchev, you start your book with an account of your father coming home from Stalin's Dhaka and uh, uh, rather depressed and uh, tells you that Stalin has died and it will be announced on the next day but what I mean to ask you immediately both of you of course is what then was the situation both internal and external of the Soviet Union uh, at the moment of Stalin's death
2: internal situation it was such Thinking that we lost the God and it was on the all levels of the people. Lost I was the God Yes, and I was at that crowd that was gathering in this most dangerous area all the night because it was no possibility to go out to move somewhere and my parents looking for me everywhere the police at the hospital they didn't expect that I will return alive and when i returned my father told why you have to go there if you want to see him you i can bring you and you will see him and the outside you know outside it was even more uncertain because i don't know why i did know at that time but stalin expecting that the third world war will start it not later than 55 or 56 mm-hmm. and he ordered the full preparation for the war, so we just really moved to the real war. Yeah. We do learn from this new book by Sergei
1: Khrushchev that uh, the Soviet elite, as led by Stalin, really lived on and off with the expectation that the United States would launch a preemptive assault against them with nuclear weapons. Uh, it's amazing to realize that that was seriously credited at the highest levels.
3: As uh, the American elite feared pretty much did the, the same, same thing from did the, same. Uh, the Soviet side. Yes, it is. It is odd. Partly that was a uh, product of bad intelligence on both sides. Partly it was a matter of uh, reading facts through an ideological prism on both sides that uh, led to a complete misunderstanding of what was going on. Uh, to give the both sides some Credit. I mean, there were facts going on, facts on the ground that suggested aggressive intent on both sides. There had been the blockade of Berlin in 1948. Uh, There was the formation of the NATO alliance, uh, a a Western military uh, buildup. There were Soviet troops in Eastern Europe. It wasn't, it was difficult, I think, for both sides actually to sort out what was going on.
1: And going back to the Eisenhower regime. The Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, who was rather good at uh, fierce rhetoric, got off lines about rolling back the Iron Curtain and agonizing reappraisals of our situation concerning the Soviet
2: Union. Uh, it was threatening. Of course it was everything threatening, but I am agree that, you know, the Iron Curtain was not only divided two worlds. It reflected on the same way on the both side. It was evil empire. On this side and evil empire on the other side, you were evil empire to the Soviets. It was this fear of the first strike. It was really no intention on the both sides to start the war. It was never in the mind of my father. I don't think that even Stalin could think about this because he understood that the Soviet Union is much weaker. But it was understood
1: by the strategic theorists on both sides that uh, a way to prevent nuclear war would be to build up a in our strategic language to build up a credit a a credible deterrent a second strike retaliatory capability which would survive any first strike and that would then inhibit the adversary from undertaking I, a first uh, strike, I think that
3: comes a little bit later,
2: yeah. much later. In the
1: so development of strategic the theory, devel- there
3: had to be more weapons, so then, then there had to be think uh-huh. tanks where people could invent these theories, and that's a later yeah. stage. Yeah, the RAND
1: Corporation on our side
2: mm-hmm. wasn't yet fully geared up for this sort not, of thing.
3: They're not dealing with the same issues at that
2: point. At, at that time, both sides thought, especially my f- my father told told me this after the Geneva summit, mm-hmm. that it is. He thinks it is possible to deal with that guys, but you must be strong. It was just the chain of misperception and misunderstanding, because when Eisenhower just uh, presented his open sky idea, my father rejected, which generated suspicion. But he rejected because, as he told me, if they will overfly our territory, they will understand how weak we are. It will provoke them to the first strike. So all the time, Americans thought that Khrushchev hiding something. Yeah. But one thing that he hid is nothing to hide. Eisenhower's open
1: sky proposal was: uh, we will uh, give us the full right to overfly your territory. You can have the same right to overfly American territory, so that we both know with uh, surveillance. Operations for the graphic operations. We both know what
2: is on the ground. Yes, yeah, because he want just to prevent second Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and for Soviet Union, who knew that Americans are strong, was not so much interested just to verify how strong they are. They are what is moving there. My father, as I told, don't want to show American that we yeah. are so weak that it will push. We know that General May just generated this idea one after another to make this preventive strike.
1: Yes, and others. Uh, Barry Goldwater once got over a famous line uh, when things were tense between Washington and Moscow. He said, why don't we lob one into the men's room of the Kremlin, yeah. which was a colorful way of saying we could undertake a nuclear assault upon the Soviet Union. But, gentlemen, uh, I want to do much more with that. Uh, uh, that is the playing through of the Cold War on both sides, with all the extra knowledge we have uh, which helps to illuminate it from the new book by Sergei Khrushchev. I was asking both about the international situation at the time of Stalin's death and also about the internal political situation. There was, of course, a great crisis uh, immediately after Stalin's death, a crisis as to who would survive and who would succeed him in power.
2: Really, it was not Uh, such strong fighting as it was. Well, they killed one of the the principals as they presented in the Western uh, Sovietology, but it was the great fear about Beria because he was uh, the chief of police. He controlled all the security of members of the Politburo. But Beria was tried and executed within how many months after Stalin's death? Uh, Beria was arrested on the uh, June 1953, mm-hmm. just uh, uh, several months after Stalin's death, and he had been executed after the trial in December same year.
1: Your father rises as the successor to Stalin, but he by no means has the kind of power that Stalin had, because he's much more dependent upon the Politburo than Stalin was in the
2: last years of Stalin's reign. Of course... Each of them who will be the first man will be dependent of the Politburo the same way as Stalin was dependent of the Politburo after the Lenin death. And the second, my father never wanted to be the real such cruel dictator as Stalin because he believed in the communism as the best best life to the people. And he told the communism will be like the real paradise on the earth. But it is impossible to live in the paradise surrounded by the barbar wire. So he started also these changes in opening the door of the concentration camps and prisons.
1: There is a, something that we came to call the thaw, uh, which is associated with your father's first years in power. Uh, the thaw of the, the chill, the ice that covered the repressive Stalin regime.
3: Uh, there was there were remarkable changes in all of the arts and all of culture and literature by comparison with uh, the cultural scene, the literary scene in, the, in Stalin's last years. Uh, there has never been a worse time in c- Russian cultural history than uh, the period after World War
1: II. At the time of Stalin's death, how many uh, prisoners were there in the gulag?
3: I think the latest, um, this, actually this is a very interesting question because uh, one of the things that's happened since the archives is, have begun to open is that we can actually answer questions like mm. that. Uh, not exactly, but with uh, a great deal more precision than in the past. I believe that the latest figure is about three million people altogether. And what estimate do we have as to how many had died
1: under the Stalinist repression, whether starving to death? Uh, in the Gulag, or just exhausted to death in the Gulag, uh, well, or the, whether directly executed.
3: There are t- two co- two different components there. One, the starving to death, that's usually uh, associated with collectivization. Well, in, a the, much in, difficult, diff- in the Ukraine in the early right. 1930s, in, in, the Ukraine? not just the Ukraine, uh, the, there, the, there's a, still a lot of argument because there weren't people counting. And the Gulag system, the number of people killed, those things were actually counted, there are right. actual records. Uh,
1: that have, and we had also uh, the purges in which, you had the major trials in the mid 1930s. Mm-hmm. But also a million or so party members were killed at around that time. Uh, in
3: 1937 and 1938, roughly one million people were yeah. executed outright. Uh, in the same year, about, uh, may, in the, the mid that same period, uh, a couple of million people were arrested and sent to the gulags. These are shockingly high numbers, but they're they're low considerably lower than. Are the estimates based on just guesswork? Well, the Bible, the the
1: Bible tells us, as you remember, Saul has killed his his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. How many millions can we really trace to Stalin?
2: No, if we will include here the the Second World War and the starvation, it was not only 30s on. after the Second World War. These figures estimate somewhere between 40 to 60 million. Which is a lot of blood on the hands a of, lot of, blood of one man.
3: Uh, footnote to that would be that it was after all Hitler who invaded the Soviet Union. To be sure, to be sure. The 27 million who died during World War II uh, on the Soviet side weren't all vick stalin's victim well yeah, you know that r-
2: they were stalin victims because stalin destroyed the army and he just allowed hitler to go so far you so refer there deadly. back
1: to the years before the war where he yes, purged the army were, high command
2: yeah not only high command most of the command
1: marshal tukhachevsky and thousands of others. not the marshal
2: tukhachevsky at that time division was in the command of the lieutenant lieutenants
1: fascinating times. And this is what your father inherited as he came to power uh, as the leading figure uh, in the Soviet hierarchy. We are due for some commercials, in fact we're overdue for those. When we return we'll continue to talk about how he consolidated power, then we must address what your book is so uh, particularly focused on, namely the rivalry between the US and the Soviet Union and the arms policies that were developed and the way in which it was all played through. And that leads us to a climactic moment some years later, uh, namely the Cuban Missile Crisis, so-called, and a few years after that, the final fall of Sergei Khrushchev. All of that to be annotated and elaborated in conversation with, I said Sergei, with Nikita Khrushchev, who fell. <laughs> all of that to be further annotated by his son, Sergei Khrushchev, and by John Bushnell of Northwestern University. First these words.
4: When you're one of Chicagoland's best restaurants, it's hard to keep improving, but they always find a way at the very popular Vince's Italian restaurant, 4747 North Harlem Avenue near Lawrence and Harwood Heights. Vince's has been serving superb Italian cuisine for more than 27 years. Vince's pasta lineups a real winner, featuring over 30 pasta dishes, or try the veal marsala, a well-crafted marsala sauce in a forest of sliced mushrooms spread right across the top. Restaurant critic Pat Bruno reviewed this dish as one of his favorites. Enjoy distinct. Dining in one of three separate rooms, ranging from a bright and lively atmosphere to an intimate setting. During the week, Vince's features daily luncheon specials at very affordable prices. Vince's motto is virtue and value. For business or pleasure, it's always a delight. Another treat on Friday and Saturday is the music of John Romano. There's plenty of free parking with complete facilities for the physically challenged. A banquet room's available for private parties. Call Vince's for dinner reservations at 708-867-7770. Vince's, 4747 North Harlem, Avenue and Harwood Heights. See the WGN Fan Van Friday afternoon from 2 to 4 at Panera Bread and Wheaton at Donata Square Shopping Center near Butterfield and Dnieperville Roads. The first ten people get a free panini sandwich and drink courtesy of Panera Bread.
5: Thinking about a website for your company? Eventually, every company will consider a website an absolute necessity. That's when they should call AmericanEagle.com at 773-network. From concept to design to internet connection, AmericanEagle.com brings an experience not found in such a new industry. Starting with software publishing, they've been in the business since 1978. And while there are many companies in the website business today, they offer both proven technical expertise and professionals with strong business and marketing experience, with a total cost as low as $2,500 for a complete website development. No company is too small or too large. Their clients include small retail, manufacturing, and service businesses, plus Fortune 500 companies. In addition to websites for networking, email, intranet, or e-commerce solutions, just call 773-NETWORK. That's 773-NETWORK, AmericanEagle.com on the World Wide Web. Their name is their reference.
6: Extension 720 is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com.
0: Your Ford store will get right to the point. Get 0.9% financing on the all-new Ford Taurus and save big on interest charges. Taurus raises the bar for sedans in its class. More interior room, more trunk space, more exclusive features like power-adjustable brake and gas pedals that move to fit you. Now 0.9% financing
6: or $1,000 cash back. That should point you to your local Ford store today.
5: What's the point at your Ford store? 0.9% financing on Ford Windstar saves big on interest charges. Windstar's the only minivan to earn a 5-star safety rating for both front and side impact. Your family's safety comes first, but you'll also love Windstar's style and comfort. Now get 0.9% financing or choose $1,500 cash back. That's one point of interest you don't want to miss at your local Ford store today.
0: Visit your Ford store for complete details. Not all customers will qualify for lowest APR. For cashback or limited-term Ford credit APR, take new retail delivery from dealer stock by 630-2000. We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago. This is Milton Rosenberg.
1: Before we get back to the main story that is developed in Sergei Khrushchev's new book, Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower, which, as I think I said before, is published by Penn state press before we get back to that some of our listeners will be wondering what is the son of nikita khrushchev doing living in america having recently become an american citizen teaching at brown university associated with an institute for foreign
2: policy uh, at brown university how'd you get here oh i think it was the first sign of the end of the cold war because Uh i never immigrated in america i met Uh, once with Tom Watson, former president of IBM, the founder of our institute. And uh, later I received this invitation to work some time in the institute and I came here in 1991, not expecting to stay there more than one or two years. Mm-hmm. But then, year after year, I found myself very comfortable. I wrote these books, I lectured, and I liked. Rhode Island weather which was remind me Ukrainian weather where I grew up so Then it was three years five years now. It's nine years But did it also
1: reflect some disillusion with the turn the Soviet Union had taken or the turn that Russia had taken After the dissolution of the Soviet Union.
2: No, it's not so much related with the of the Soviet Union I had uh, my own problems with my research institute where I worked. My last position was first vice president. Then I quit from this <clears> because I wanted to write my own book mm-hmm. and finish editing my father's memoirs. After that, I look for some other place. You were trained as an electrical engineer and you've worked and uh, an advanced
1: mathematician. You've worked a great deal earlier on the Soviet missile program. Yes, for and 10 years. For 10 years. It helps to develop their version of the, the cruise missile uh similar things on the defense side of um, of uh, Soviet research that isn't what you do now of course now you're operating as an historian essentially
2: mostly i worked with the same structures as you mentioned more mathematics i was not i never worked with wires mm-hmm. i worked with the uh, squares with formulas inside that will create the guidance system and the same, the society you are looking in the structures. So now I am mostly looking in the uh, That's political guidance. Stri- yes, yeah, structures yeah. of the Soviet uh, society. They're transforming from the yeah. centralized yeah. to decentralized society. So it's go similar. back to
1: what was inside the political box at the time your father came to power. What uh, upon who or upon whom or what could he depend? Where was he endangered within the Soviet political hierarchy?
2: But once the Stalin died, the Politburo just nominated the old members of the party to the high rank positions, and there were two, three uh, leaders at that time. I think in the first place was the Beria, for the chief of police and first deputy of the prime minister. On the second was my father, the party secretary. And on the third was Malinkov, who was the prime minister and who officially was in the first place. He was Stalin's more or less designated successor, wasn't he? Malinkov. Yes. He just replaced Stalin's and the uh, prime minister. No. And the, chairman of the council of ministers but a year or
1: so later he was uh, he was gone
2: essentially he was gone in 1955 and mm-hmm. it was inevitable because he was the man of the consensus he was not the leader he had to join somebody and the first years after the months of the stalin death he was more uh, under the barrier control but very soon he understood that barrier is dangerous to all of them, because when he will took the power, all of them will be executed.
1: Now, in your father's view, in those first three or four years that he is in power, that he is at the top of the Soviet hierarchy, in his view and the view he shared with the important members of the Politburo, what was their strategic situation? What was their reading of the nature of the struggle between the USSR and the U.S.?
2: It was two things. First, to improve the life of the people. The main goal was not to compete with America on the battlefield, but to catch up America in the production, butter, milk, and meat per capita. These slogans was everywhere, and to just prevent the war, making Soviet strength pow- powerful enough. And my father told that we cannot be equal to Americans because our economy was only one-third of Americans. So we cannot balance the powers. We have just Mm -hmm. to pick these forces that we need. And it was mostly strategic forces and the missiles. So that was the great
1: Khrushchev decision, to change the profile of power by getting rid of a great deal of the conventional strength and depending upon a nuclear deterrent.
3: Uh, yes, that's true. I'd like to back up uh, just a moment t- to get to that same point. Mm-hmm. And I-, I-, I actually have a question for Sergei because, uh, he has one ac- actually very close and personal view, having actually known these men, and it's a, the way we tell the same story, and how it is that Khrushchev emerged on top, it uh, goes something like this. This is, of course, the condensed version. Uh, immediately after Stalin died, all of the leaders agreed that, the Soviet Union had to do two things, improve consumer, uh, cons- improve consumption dramatically in the Soviet Union uh, and uh, achieve better relations with the West. And they made what were, for the time, very dramatic gestures. Uh, of the leadership group, and this is, again, the way we generally tell the story, Malenkov was the one who seemed to be the more liberal. Uh, Malenkov was the one who first said, uh, we cannot have nuclear war because it will destroy civilization uh... malenkov uh... also called for diverting funds from heavy industry into light industry and at the time khrushchev although he agreed with the general principles that everybody agreed on uh... nikita khrushchev uh, emphasized agriculture uh, and because he ag- emphasized agriculture he avoided Uh, the anger of people associated with heavy industry who didn't like reducing a heavy industry in favor of consumption Uh, and he also avoided the anger of everybody who was associated with the military who were worried about the uh, threat to the military spending if relations with the United States are improved Uh, and Khrushchev then outmaneuvering Malenkov then says many of the same things that Malenkov said himself. And the key and the way we tell this story of Khrushchev's emergence on top is that of all of the members of the Politburo, he was the only one uh, who uh, had a position of leadership within the Communist Party itself. The others were Minister of Defense, Prime Minister, positions like that, so that Khrushchev could call on the support of the Central Committee, the people that he was helping to put into secondary positions of power in order to consolidate power for himself.
1: Yet, the common American perception uh, was of a different order concerning Khrushchev. He was seen, uh, represented by many, as um, uh, as impetuous, as threatening, as dogmatic. The man who asserted, we will bury you, the man who banged his shoe at the UN, the man who killed the, uh, uh, the meeting with Eisenhower right after... Uh, by revealing that they had shut down Gary Powers in, in his U-2, and of course the man who is the crucial actor, together with Kennedy on the other side, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. The general perception, while he was in power, was that Khrushchev was uh, impetuous and
2: possibly dangerous that he might start a war. But Khrushchev has two ideas. First of all, he wants to show that he is strong enough, really bluffing, because you, americans have the strategic air bases surrounding soviet union mm-hmm. and we have no access to american bases territory. in turkey and in italy it's not only it's not missiles missiles was not important no, at that aircraft. time it was aircraft no. it was about 2500 strategic aircraft b-47 b-52 mm. so he threatened americans he told we build them not only when bury it was he really never told this but he told we build the missiles like a sausages and i remember i was at that time in that industry i met him in the evening we lived together he told how you can tell this we have only five missiles what are sausages here he told who care about this americans have to believe that we're strong enough what you not what year are you talking? Are year are the- talking about when you had only five missiles but he wanted america to believe that you had hundreds because he told before and his speech, which now we produced missiles yeah. in our factories like sausages. What year? What year are we in at that point? What? What year is that? I think it was maybe fifty-seven. 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 So we're still facing Eisenhower. Yes, he still and he tried to show this that we are strong. And yeah. second, he wanted to be accept, accepted at the equal. And so he have to react it on each American step Americans landed in Lebanon. He started his military exercise on the borders and also he ex- He exploded his image. Sometimes he liked to be such threatening mm-hmm. figure. I remember when he first has his live TV interview. And it was the first time you have to answer live, not on the paper. When you here, here in edited. the United States? No, in Kremlin. Yeah. In Kremlin. Yeah. So w- until this crew prepared in the next door to his office, he was nervously walking in his office, then he opened the door and started to shout on the crew, I know you are Americans all the time, you are asking this, you are better provoking questions, and they didn't know what to do. And then he looked around them, uh, on them, Step back and close the door. So it was no questions at all. They told what you want to say, Mr. Prime Minister. So it was. So the tactic was bluster in a threatening way? Yes, I think he. it was his. Uh, p- not all the time, but in many yeah. cases.
1: But that, that was
3: running some risk, was it not, John? Well, it was a
2: t- in the long run, it was a terrible mistake. Yeah.
3: It's not an easy situation that uh, Khrushchev faced. It, no country wants to be. Perceived as much weaker uh, than the opponent. Uh, on the other hand, the uh, the strategic bluffing that uh, Khrushchev did fed American fears uh, at the time of the nineteen sixty election. Kennedy went around complaining about the the Eisenhower the missile gap and exactly. so far, the so Soviets far behind, have more missiles than we have. Kennedy, right, which of course wasn't true. And the Republicans haven't kept up with them. Right, and it was it wasn't true, no. uh, and. The, the way that Khrushchev handled this um, matter uh, led the Americans to uh, develop their own strategic weapons faster than they otherwise would have done
2: yes it was really created the missile gap that existed only on the American side mm-hmm. because Khrushchev supported uh, American military industrial complex just through the, his rhetoric by the way same way like the President Reagan with his SDI idea supported Soviet military industrial complex uh, what's the total?
1: Has anyone ever figured out the total expenditure of uh, the strategic weapons side of the Cold War over all the years? Uh, how I'm sure somebody has, but I don't how know. How much national wealth was spent on both sides to develop nuclear weapons and uh, supposed nuclear defenses? Billions and billions and billions.
2: It and billions. Is, uh, I think on the American side, it's trillions. I, it's I, re- I read these figures in Soviet yeah. Union. It is impossible to trace these figures because plan to each minister. When sometimes mm. it was uh, this hidden spa- spending, it's not hidden, it was different. Because it was not money that was given to the defense ministry that paid to them. It was everywhere. And I think when my father told that will be enough from three to five hundred missiles with warheads, and then we had thousands of them think it was maybe hundreds time more that we really we needed and it's was one of the cause of the disaster of the Soviet economy well, in your father's time what was the maximum number of missiles that were in fact
1: uh, built up
2: I think if we will talk only about the intercontinental missiles in 64 yeah maybe about 100 only 100 only 100 because we still don't have the good enough design that can be launched in the short time and we designed just design bureau where i worked this missile that will known as ss11 in 1967. so the real deployment mass deployment of the strategic missiles start in 1967-68
1: are you suggesting then that during all those years of that your father was in power and even beyond into the brezhnev years that um soviet nuclear soviet icbms were uh, far um, less frequent than american ICBMs? yes it was uh... the advantage was always to the united states
2: yes adventure was all the time in the united states because in 1962 americans started to deploy Minuteman one mm-hmm. but much more advanced the soviet ballistic missiles because we did not have at that time the solid propellant and did we go to and we went to merv missiles sooner than the soviet later. yes but it was mostly at the same time maybe you were ahead with the merv missiles for one or two years i remember i start to design the first missile in Soviet Union after my father was ousted of power, I think it was '65 or '66. Mm-hmm.
1: The underside or the hidden side of, of the strategic uh, side of the Cold War is fascinating, and I think there's a great deal we still don't know. I'm sure that this new book uh, by Sergei Khrushchev, titled "Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower," uh, Will uh, do a great deal to illuminate it. But you know, as one reads this book and as one listens to you right now, the creation of a superpower
2: sounds a little bit like what in Russia they call a Potemkin village. Why the Potemkin village? At that time, it was, as the uh, professor told, it was no, no all this research of Ren Corporation, the Soviet uh, researchers who just. Talk about the first strike second strike third strike and all these theoretical ideas at that time both leaders thought how much of our citizen and mm-hmm. people we can sacrifice for our victory and the answer was known so even with this was the, uh, with the super American superiority about 1 to 10 during the meeting between my father and president Kennedy in Vienna they agreed that now it's some balanced power mm-hmm. of the destruction.
1: <clears throat> I'm glad you mentioned your father's meeting with Kennedy in Vienna. That was in 1961, I believe. Yes, right? in
2: June.
1: And Kennedy came out of that meeting saying, boy, that was hard. And he came out rather shaken by your father's severity and, uh, and his adamant uh, position. And it is argued or interpreted by some, am I right in this, John, that uh, this Generated the new Kennedy push towards arming up and towards playing tough because there was a real Soviet threat We learned that from Khrushchev in Vienna.
3: Well, we learned uh, we learned that Kennedy believed he learned that uh, from Khrushchev in Vienna Carter believed he learned that from the Soviet Union in the late 1970s American reactions were almost always wrong But also almost always predictable because they were reacting to to things to what Soviet leaders were really saying what soviets were really Mm -hmm. doing
1: and this is the workup, this is the beginning of the workup towards possibly the most dangerous moment in the history of the Cold War, namely the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I propose that we talk about how that happened and how it got, thank God, resolved and, uh, how, what, and ask how much danger were we in at the peak of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, we'll do all of that as we return to Sergei Khrushchev and to John Bushnell after this. The following is the
0: WGN Radio prize policy. You call it the fine for giveaway and prize list items with a value below $600. Only one winner per household in any 60-day period. For major prize sweepstakes with a grand prize value exceeding $600, anyone may enter. As long as no member of their household has won another prize in excess of $600 within the two-year period preceding the date of the contest drawing or award, no substitute prizes will be awarded. WGN Radio does not mail out merchandise prizes. Prizes are either shipped directly by sponsors or certificates redeemable for prizes are mailed to winners. Many prizes can be used only for a certain period of time. No extensions or changes in these conditions are possible. WGN Radio cannot replace lost or stolen prize certificates or merchandise. And WGN Radio will not be responsible if prizes become unavailable due to unforeseen circumstances beyond our control. Winners are responsible for any tax liability resulting from receipt of prizes. That's right. Uncle Sam knows who you are and where you are. Copies of contest rules can be obtained by writing wgn radio
1: with 15,000 cabinets in stock kda
0: can deliver your new marillette kitchen or bath as quick as two days stop by a kda showroom today
7: Better hurry. Jewel is having a three-day sale through Saturday. With savings so hot, we call them our Jewel Summer Sizzlers. Fire up the grill for USDA Select Beef Tenderloin Filet Mignon. Get two six-ounce portions for just $4.98. Be sure you bring home plenty of our large cantaloupe, only 69 cents each with Preferred Card, and sweeten up warm June days with Crystal Sugar. A five-pound bag is just 99 cents with Preferred Card, Limit One.
5: Rest to your family from
7: Jewel. It's twice as nice shopping at Jewel's Buy One, Get One Free sale, because you can double up on all kinds of favorites and save. Like six packs of Pepsi or half gallons of Baldwin ice cream. Buy one, get one free. The same goes for one-pound packages of California premium strawberries, 64-ounce Indian summer apple juice, selected Oscar Mayer Fun Pack Lunchables, and more. Buy one, get one free at Jewel.
0: Want to find out what to do this weekend? dancing nightlife music food theater art movies whatever metro mix the tv show get with the team that knows the scene if it's happening in chicago it's happening on metro mix the tv show tonight at 10:30 only on cltv From Radio 720 WGN, this is Extension 720. Here's your host and moderator, Milt Rosenberg.
1: And we return to John Bushnell, professor of history, specialist in Soviet and Russian history at Northwestern University, and to Sergei N. Khrushchev, uh, whose newest book is Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower. Sergei Khrushchev is now on the staff at the Center for Foreign Policy Development at the Thomas J. Watson Institute, for International Studies at Brown University where he, Sergei Khrushchev, also teaches courses to Brown students. Gentlemen, I want to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but to convey uh, the extent of the danger we probably were in, uh, I want to take you back to an earlier, uh, at the peak of the Missile Crisis, I want to take you back to an earlier time. Here is a fragment, uh, a recording coming up right now, of a conversation that I had with Robert Gates Uh, the former head of the CIA but uh, before he was head of the CIA he was on the staff of the National Security Council uh, uh, under Zbigniew Brzezinski thus in the Carter years thus um, in the years uh, up to uh, 1980 when uh, Reagan comes in Uh, so this is this goes back to a reference uh, in the middle of the Carter
8: administration listen to this in 78 or 79. In the middle of the night, one night, Brzezinski got a call from his military assistant uh, at home telling him that the military assistant had been informed by the National Military Command Center that the Soviets had launched 220 warheads at the United States. Uh, Brzezinski, knowing that the president's window of decision was four to six minutes uh, before it would be too late, decided he had to take a extra minute or two to try and determine whether this was true or not. He asked his military assistant to confirm that the Strategic Air Command had launched or was launching its bombers and that the appropriate measures were taken to alert US forces. His assistant called back a minute later and he said indeed the first report had been mistaken. There were not 220 nuclear warheads launched against the United States. There were instead 2200. It was an all-out attack or it appeared to be an all-out attack. My God. <laughs> Brzezinski later told me he didn't even waken his wife uh, sleeping there beside him. He figured that the world was coming to an end, and he had about another minute before he called the president. And just before he picked up the phone to call President Carter and tell him what he thought was happening or what appeared to be happening, he got a third call from his assistant who said that the space-based sensors were not picking up launches from the Soviet Union. Was this the famous flight of ducks? No, this one was a an error at the North American Air Defense Command, or at the Strategic Air Command, where an exercise tape had been put into the computer by mistake. And and fortunately, because none of the other sensors uh, validated uh, a launch against the United States, nothing happened. And this is so many years after the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: The Cuban Missile Crisis is in 1962, is it not? 62. And here this is 78, as I I remember. Uh, So we're 16 years later and still there is this high instability. The Cuban Missile Crisis must have contributed to the development of that state of mutual instability and mutual distrust and the readiness to launch on warning when in fact you might be getting information
2: which suggested a nuclear assault that wasn't really there. I think that in reality the cuban missiles crisis worked in the opposite way because before it was chain of crisis to berlin crisis middle east crisis far east crisis and the peak of this crisis was cuban miss- missile crisis at that both sides understood that now they really can destroy each other after that, there was no such policy of crisis on the both sides even it was the vietnam war and it was the afghan war and the khrushchev and kennedy they began to trust each other much more than before you remember they established this uh, special line communication Mm communication line hotline hotline then they signed the test ban treaty they was very close to the uh, during the efforts of the uh, man-moon program the Kennedy offered this to Khrushchev to, to my father twice and first my father rejected the same way He told in 61 that Americans through this will find out how weak we are in 63 when Kennedy returned to this he told now we're strong enough and I think we have to do this I was again this I told they will know all our secrets he told they can design all the things by themselves but we will save money and also we will improve our relations.
1: Sergei Khrushchev, what is your understanding of what motivated your father to undertake the placement of those missiles in Cuba?
2: It was only one, the same as it was motivated year later President Kennedy to say in West Berlin, I'm Berliner. He, when Americans really presented Castro to Soviets, because before Soviet Union, they did not think that he was really communist and he would want to be on our side. It was threatening to have him on our side. Cuba was too far. When he declared this, it was no other possibility than prevent the American invasion. And um, it was could be prevented would be the signal to the United States that would you invite in Cuba, it will be the nuclear war. It was what was behind my father's decision to deploy these missiles on Cuba. And it was the best example of all this chain misperception and misunderstanding that lead to this crisis, because my father never thought that it be such a deep crisis. As he did not anticipate the American reaction yes. to the missiles being placed in Cuba. Yes, because he thought that the same reaction is in Europe, where you're more thinking about political decisions, but Americans for all their history were secure by two oceans, mm-hmm. and it was the pressure on the White House from the uh, public opinion from the media from military just kick them out, and I spoke with some Kennedy mm-hmm. c- people close to Kennedy during my research and asked why you knew that we never launched them the same as you will not launch your missiles from Turkey, told, we knew this in really the real politics were acceptable to us. But we, would we announce this, Americans would kick us from the White House no. in a week. So they were under the situation when they had to solve problems unprepared. So you're saying that the reaction of Kennedy and
1: company was as much politically motivated as it was motivated by strategic considerations. Does that check out, in your view, John Bushnell?
3: Uh, yes, it does. Um, let me back up again, and I hope to circle around more successfully this time. The example that you gave is actually uh, that is the Gates example that yeah. uh, Robert Gates gave. Uh, contrasts enormously with what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis was very public, but also very slow moving. You had more than two minutes to make up your mind. Yes, neither sure. side at that point had. The kind of overwhelming strategic missile uh, capacity uh, that could lead them to think that they could ob- simply obliterate the other side with a, a, a preemptive strike. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was, of course, very, very dangerous. I think it wasn't just American politics. I mean, I think there were people who didn't understand what the Soviet Union was doing, who were worried that, uh, well, this is, after all, uh, This is going to uh, greatly enhance the Soviet ability to strike American territory with nuclear weapons. This is a sudden destabilization of an environment that we thought was pretty predictable. Nothing makes people on either side more worried than a change. Almost any change makes people nervous because people, especially strategic thinkers, are used to stability, predictability. And uh, the movement of missiles made things unpredictable again. How did we get out of that mess? Uh, Who's the
1: hero of the extrication from the Cuban missile crisis? Is it Kennedy? Is it Khrushchev? Is it both or neither?
2: Both, because the Cuban missiles crisis just was the resolving the crisis was built on the foundation of the my father's Eisenhower relations, where they started not maybe trust each other, maybe I will use the word trust each other, because it was the first crisis during the Cold War, when both leaders from the beginning started negotiating. All previous crises was just uh, (coughs) showing each other how strong we are. It was military exercises, tanks of the borders, it was the air force exercises. And here, it was exchange of the secret letters. That mean that they thought that through this they will solve it. And I think it's, it's one of the most important part of this crisis, much more important than any others. There was a curious aspect of all of
1: it, that there were the two messages from Khrushchev. One far more rejecting, the other conciliatory. And it was, I think, Robert Kennedy's suggestion that we respond to the conciliatory one rather than to the other one.
3: Oh, yes, there were people on both sides. Uh, I I agree with Sergei completely. I mean, both men, both leaders were... uh, showed a considerable human insight in working their way out of a crisis that both of them had managed to create. That is, Khrushchev managed to create it by trying to put missiles in Cuba, Kennedy by reacting to what he thought were uh, partly American political uh, pressures. I can't be seen to blink. I mean, it was—he yeah. uh, felt that he couldn't that do it. famous still.
1: line by Dean Rusk: "We're standing eyeball to eyeball, and I think the other side—the other fellow just blinked." Right. That was at uh, the time of the Cuban missile fa- crisis. But in
3: fact, Kennedy had already blinked at that at that point. Uh, we had come to an understanding uh, that one, we had promised we really won't invade Cuba we will guarantee. We also supposedly made say, a promise that we would remove we'll those move, missiles from we Turkey. We will remove those missiles from Turkey, but we can't say we're doing it. Yeah. We can't be seen to be making a deal here, as though our missiles in Turkey are equivalent to the, your missiles. in. Turkey. A part of that story
1: is that supposedly, I don't know whether this is pure apocryphal or not, that Kennedy didn't know that we had the missiles in Turkey.
3: <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. There's no reason to think that. Um, uh, you know, there's all, There are also apocryphal stories that Khrushchev didn't realize that we had missiles in Turkey. I mean, leaders can't know where all the missiles in the world no, were.
2: No, Khrushchev knew this because he used this it's his propagandist weapon sitting in his research on the Dacia and the Black Sea short At all. You see, I, I just see from here American missiles on the opposite side of the Black Sea. So he used it. He could not know because for Soviet Union, this possibility to have access to American territory was crucial. Changes in their mm. strategic possibilities. For Americans, That is few more missiles that really could not fly. First generation missiles could not fly. I just met one gen- general who was in charge of this Turkey base, retired. As, in, my, in one of my lectures, he told no threat from us because these missiles would never fly. I told him, the same as our missiles in Cuba. Huh. <laughs> so uh, we were also practicing strategic
3: deception. That is, we were pretending to have things... Would, no, it's not pretending. It was uh, the level
2: work. of the technology at that time. The, the same day, well. the same the Brothers Wright airplane. Well, let's say it's a different kind of pretending. Yes.
3: You're saying
1: that at that time, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, or the closer cruise-like missiles, which is what the Soviets really installed in Cuba... It was
2: not the cruise. It was the... in the
1: not They were intermediate range, intermediate range, rather than intercontinental. That's why you had to
2: had to, get you could to hit
1: Cuba. Florida from Cuba rather than from uh, the Urals. But uh, you're saying that actually, actually the technology was still so uh, faulty, that one couldn't be sure that these systems would work at all
2: No, of course it was the first generation of the missiles of course I always exaggerated that it would fly there was very dangerous though so don't say that it was no danger yeah. but it was not like the contemporary missiles with you know surely their tar- the,
1: surely the targeting would not have been as good as Or well,
2: targeting at that time was awful yeah. i remember when we built the first missiles we have the square 16 to 16 kilometers and we were so proud that we have so mm-hmm. ag- so high accuracy uh,
1: some commercials coming in a moment let me mention another crucial date october 14 1964 just about two years after the cuban missile crisis and that is the time when the central committee essentially uh, revolts against khrushchev and displaces him takes him out of power it is commonly interpreted and this is what I hope we might discuss shortly, that but for the Cuban Missile Crisis, that wouldn't have happened, that, uh, it was, that the rest of the Soviet hierarchy felt that, however things really worked out, uh, the Soviet Union had been put in public dishonor uh, through the Cuban Missile Crisis and through the yielding, the withdrawal of the weapons from Cuba. And thus, Nikita Khrushchev's days were numbered from that moment on. I'd love to your views both of you on that
6: interpretation after we pause
1: for these words
6: this is attorney jeff loving and if you're a father losing your children to divorce call me at 312-807-3990
9: 312-807-3990 this message does not apply to the following people those who have unlocked the secret to time travel and manipulate fate for profitable business decisions those who have ESP and using their psychic abilities read the minds of the world's top executives each morning or those who have mastered the science of alchemy and are able to make large quantities of gold from cheap, common materials, like breakfast cereals or gravel. For everyone else, we offer these important words of wisdom. The Wall Street Journal. Every business day, you'll find the news and insight you need to make informed decisions. When it comes to understanding the markets, taking charge of your career, or making the most of your weekend, the Wall Street Journal can help. Pick up a copy of the journal at your newsstand today or get 13 weeks of the journal, delivered for just 57 cents a day. To order, call 800-826-2200. That's 800-826-2200. Offer good for new subscribers in the continental U.S. only. The Wall Street Journal, adventures in capitalism. They were newlyweds,
10: just back from their honeymoon. They found the home of their dreams and came to me for insurance. Frank Marshall is an Allstate agent. Well, I can remember what it's like starting out. My wife and I barely had two dimes to rub together. Money was tight, so I was happy I could get them a discount on both their auto insurance and their new home insurance. It's a simple thing, I guess, but it was like a wedding present. Taking advantage of the home and auto insurance discounts from the Allstate Insurance Company is a smart idea. You can save about 15% off your home and 10% off your auto insurance. You might make a little extra money on some life insurance policies if you insure your car and home with Allstate, too. People like Frank will know how to help you. You don't have to be a honeymooner to save money. Stop by and see me, or any Allstate agent. Maybe we'll have a little present for you. Lots of companies sell insurance, but no one has people like Allstate. You're in good hands with Allstate. Mine. Discounts subject to qualifications and terms. Allstate Insurance
0: Company, Northbrook, Illinois. Now, from Radio 720 WGN Chicago, this is Extension 720. Here's your host, Milton Rosenberg.
1: For anyone interested in the history of international affairs in the modern uh, time, I cannot too strongly recommend the new book by Sergei N. Khrushchev, titled Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower. It is very informative, very um, authoritative in its interpretations, uh, revealing many things that we've never really understood before, and it is published by Penn State Press. Sergei Khrushchev is one of our guests. The other is John Bushnell, professor of history at Northwestern University. Did your father fall from power because of the outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis?
2: No, I don't think that really it was related. He was ousted of the power through the two major reasons. First, the people was tired of the reforms. It was 10 years of the reforms, still it was no big results. There were some results. People became to live better, but not as better as they expected. And the second, the elite, a so-called nomenclatura, during the Stalin time, they just care about their life. They could be repressed, purged, but then they found them safe enough But through the Khrushchev reforms, any reform that can be sent to any other place, from Moscow to Far East and back. And they wanted what they named stability. So they didn't want Khrushchev with his emotions. His adventurousness. not adventures. not adventures when you reforming you reforming structure yeah today your minister and tomorrow you will send the chairman of sonar horse in the rural area mm-hmm. and the new structure so they want to stay as long as they live in the uh, the office and the in power and they need somebody who will just give them there so they they receive this from Brezhnev because Brezhnev they stop all the reforms mm-hmm. and then you know in 20 years, it was the same people in the same chairs, but very well. That's old. why in the West it was called a period of
1: stagnation.
2: Yes, it yeah. was not only the West.
1: The term was used in the Soviet Union as well, I gather. But, John Bushnell, do you agree? Uh, because certainly a common interpretation we've had for years is that, uh, to use the Chicago language, Khrushchev lost a lot of clout by virtue of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He had reduced Soviet prestige in the world and that was a big strike against him.
3: Uh, It it was one, but one of many reasons uh, I think. Yes, it was interpreted. It wasn't so much that it was a loss of clout as that this was a Khrushchev had gambled and lost. Yeah, This was a miscalculation. We shouldn't have taken this risk. We would therefore not have been put in this position of looking to the rest of the world as though we had backed down. So it was hasty, imprudent. H- hasty, who knows and what he will do next there, time? And there were many other similar things that yeah. uh, the people who replaced him thought were, were hasty and Im- imprudent. On, I, the, per-
1: on the personal side, if I may ask this, Sergei, um, how did your father take that loss of power, and what were his last years like?
2: No, first of all, when he just came back from the office, I met him at the door, and he gave me his briefcase, I told, now I'm out. But they told, even it was only one thing that I would do through these years, that they co- could our state of power, the first man in the country, without blood shell, only through voting, I would think that I not live for nothing. And it was his first words that I remembered. Of course, it was. He was very active. He was still strong, man with many plans, new constitution, new step to democracy, changes, new reforms in agriculture. Would they try to just avoid, and many other things. So, he was first struck by all of the all these. Then he came back, but. He was never satisfied because he felt himself betrayed by his old friends they never met him and really that they, they turned reforms back and especially when they start planning Stalinization, he told it's impossible we have to say truth about stalin why he started dictating his memoirs but he, then he focused he lived not on at the like at any ty- type of the arrest but under the civilians because he has his car that belonged to the kremlin kremlin garage the chauffeur was from the kgb and he had the his officer who just and small guard that protected him and he told "I don't know they protected me from the people of people from me but he never make any attempt to do something that will make uh, have them to do Mm-hmm. Ma- make some move against him. He worked with his memoirs dictated them about three hours per day and then he worked in his garden. He just grow his tomatoes. He was very proud with tomatoes and his corn fighting with the with the crows. He has the many nests of the crows on crows, the top, yes. crows yeah. on the top of his yeah. uh, this <laughs> uh, um, new plants and they of course pick all these plants when they were young and these KGB officers told, we'll shoot them. He told, no, we'll not I'll not allow you to shoot them. He put branches on these new shoots, and the crosses just go under the branches. Yeah. But all the time he was on this pressure from the uh, Brezhnev. Brezhnev ruled for a long time. Brezhnev
1: died. Brezhnev was followed by... Uh,
2: Andropov.
1: Andropov. Andropov Andropov. doesn't last for much more than a year.
2: Just a little And then comes Chernyenko.
1: And then comes Gorbachev. And that's a renewal of reform under Gorbachev, surely. And uh, a reform which did have significant perestroika and glasnost had oh, significant yes, consequences.
3: It was such a major reform that it became a revolution.
1: Yeah. And then, I I won't rehearse all that history, our listeners remember it, it wasn't very long ago, but the Soviet Union dissolves. Actually it is Yeltsin who leads the dismemberment of the Soviet Union. Uh, And now we have, after those Yeltsin years, a new president, a new top leader, uh, a young fellow named uh, Putin, who is what, about 47 or 48, KGB background. As both of you assess it, what's the state of Russia right now? What's the state of American-Russian relations?
2: I think this relations is uh, controversial and unpredictable. Because through the mistake of the reformation, they need the reformation from the well-developed centralized economy to more effective market economy. They transform the country to the not effective economy that based on the stealing not on the expanding production and these uh, criminals that they, they now control the power and one of them the most cleverest mr berizovsky who named the professor Mariarty of the 21st century <laughs> he just the person who brought the putin to the power Berezovsky. yes and here these people interested not in improving relations between America and United States because when they grab all these wealth from the Soviet Union they try to hide them outside the country because they thought that if it will be some uprising it will be not safe there and now it was an investigation in Switzerland in the United States and other Western countries and they feeling that now their monies are unsafe and they want to prevent good relations between Russian investigators and Western investigators, and they blaming, they generated this idea that it's everything was, is happening, it is anti-Western plot against Russia. It is one thing that we have to have in mind.
1: And your interpretation is that Russia is still sort of a, comu- a criminal conspiracy controlled by a uh, the so-called Russian mafia,
2: but it was And not that Putin
1: is their puppet. Is that what you're saying? It is
2: the criminal conspiracy, not criminal conspiracy, but it was oligarch who yeah. just, not based on the expansion production, but was sh- taking money, and they brought the Putin to the power. But see, I can tell that he is puppet because if he will just create this so powerful Russian president that can be impeached, first one maybe he will support these people, maybe he eliminate them. We mm. know when such people coming to the power, they try to just take out all the people who supported them. Bill, at the Hitler with the Ram, Rome and the Stalin with his support. Yeah. They also made it all of them.
1: Uh, Bill Clinton is in Europe at the moment. He's heading towards Moscow where he's supposed to meet with Putin on uh, June 4th. Do you read the present reality, John Bushnell, no? essentially the same as does Sergei Khrushchev? Uh,
3: I think Sergei has charted a part of the reality, but not the whole of the reality. Uh, sure. It's very difficult to uh, summarize briefly what the situation in Russia is, even with the political situation small is, part or of the reality. Or the, or the economic situation is, because uh, just, just for instance, the Russian economy has been growing very well for the last year and a half. Um, you can say there's some special. It's now about the size of the Dutch economy, is that right? Uh, it's now what was the? It's now about the size of the CIA budget. Uh huh. <laughs> um, the and you know maybe a little bit bigger than the Dutch economy. Uh, the. I think that Putin, uh, is a an enigma. Uh, Putin has never himself, been in a position before where he has had to have a creative idea. He has always, that is, to have an idea of his own. He has always been an, the executor of somebody else's. He's been a, he's been a, a funct- just a functionary until a couple of years ago, who, who rose quite accidentally to the top. And if you read his campaign biography, this set of interviews that uh, came out, I mean, he characterizes himself that way. I mean, people are constantly picking him up and moving him to some somewhat higher functionary yeah. position. When he was running for president he said I won't tell you what I'm going to do when I'm president You'll have after I, you'll find out after I become president. It's not clear that he knew what he was going to do One of the things however that he has done uh, Since being elected is signal. I think uh, pretty clearly that he does want improved relations with um, The United States or better with the West in general Western Europe is much more important to Putin than uh, the United States is because Western Europe is much more likely to be a source of large investment uh, in Russia. The Russian economy, if it's going to improve, as Putin has said, uh, must be integrated into the European uh, economy. Uh, Putin has has said things like that. Uh, Putin has also uh, re-established the relations with NATO that were broken off at the time that NATO started bombing Serbia. NATO is now going to open a representative office, a propaganda bureau in Moscow, that's a, a, a first. Uh, Putin has even said, I mean, I find this the most interesting, um, that although, of course, like everybody else, he's adamantly opposed to allowing the United States to violate uh, the anti-ballistic missile treaty, uh, but he has said that while we are firmly against any, viola- any strategic missile defense, uh, we can talk about non strategic missile defense. Now, wh- whatever that means, it's a signal that if you can package this in some way that we can accept as not being a defense against strategic missiles, uh, then maybe we can reach some kind mm-hmm. of a compromise and you can go ahead and build your
2: foolish system. Yes, I agree with this, the second part of this. And the, first of all, because uh, we know nothing about him, he is the new person. We can just speculate about everything, but who is really Putin, we will not know uh, at the the end of the year.
1: Gentlemen, uh, once again, we're somewhat late for commercials. It's time to pause for those. But before I do that, it is time to invite telephone calls. Uh, Any question you'd like to raise, any thought you'd like to offer concerning the broad range of modern history that we've been uh, traversing tonight, Uh, the history of the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union, particularly the role within uh, that story of Nikita Khrushchev and, for that matter, of opposite numbers on the American side. And we have also come down to the present moment, looking at American-Russian relations and trying still to unravel uh, the mystery inside a riddle, inside an enigma. Wasn't that uh, Churchill's characterization of Russia? Uh, And Russia still remains somewhat puzzling at the present moment. five nine one seven two double zero is the number. The lines are open at this moment, 591-7200-312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. If you're listening to us uh, in uh, Novosibirsk at the moment over the internet and would like to uh, be in touch, the way to do that is probably not by telephone, but rather uh, by email. The email address is extension720 at tribune.org extension 720 at Tribune.com. Wouldn't it be nice to get some emails from Russia or from some other sector of the former Soviet Union? Uh, Particularly on the Pacific coast, people are up and it isn't uh, too inconvenient a time, I think, at the moment. Uh, Or if you're calling from any place else in the world, uh, as an Internet listener, Do get that email in to extension720 at tribune.com. If you're calling by phone, of course, 591-7200. On to your contributions directly after these words.
7: I got the construction. Below.
1: And there's nothing you can do about it. I feel so used. Now
7: there's a wind-closed All days. day
0: long, Mary Vandebelle, Mike Mathis, and Ann Maxfield tell you where the barricades are. On
5: the Stevens.
0: So you can avoid the flashing yellow lights. And I hate when that happens. I do too. It become a headache. There are too many of us. WGN Radio Traffic. Some of you are going to have to move. All day long. The governor gets to pick. Chicago's new and top Radio 720,
4: WGN. Want a flavor burst instead of a salt burst? Pick up a jar of happy Season salt at your local supermarket. Happy Season salt's great on anything you would
0: use regular salt on. Find it in the spice section. From Radio 720 WGN, this is Extension 720. Here's your host, Milt Rosenberg.
1: And we return, uh, and we'll go directly to the telephones. 591-7200 is the number. Five nine one seven two, double zero, and gentlemen, here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir.
11: Um, I understand that um, Nikita Khrushchev's rise to power was aided considerably by his role at the Battle of Stalingrad, which, of course, was such a tremendous Soviet victory. And as I understand it, um, he was the political advisor for General Yaromenko, who was responsible for the overall defense of the Stalingrad region and later, as I understand it, Aramenko was um, one of uh, Nikita Khrushchev's main backers in the late 50s, but he and a few of these other guys were out of town at the time of the coup in 64, and I would be interested in Sergei's, any memories that Sergei might have about General Aramenko or um, his relationship to Nikita Khrushchev.
2: Well, General Eremenko at the 1964, he was retired, so he had no influence. On the military and uh, uh, my father was with him at Stalingrad but his position was a little bit different it was such Stalin representative at the front so this Uh, example would it will be the victory it will be victory of the general it will be defeated the both of them will be responsible the same way and when it was defeated in the first days of the war in the Western Front, the commander of the front and the first member of the military council was uh, title of my father, uh, it, uh, the, the same person at that front had been executed. And uh, I don't think that the Stalingrad battle was too much influence, uh, promotion of my father. He was before at the... Big defeat of the Soviet Army at the Kharkov. Then he was also in the Kursk battle. But when the Ukraine had been liberated from fascists, he returned to his uh, work at the uh, prime minister of the Ukraine.
11: Do you have any specific recollections of General Araminko?
2: Oh, he was a uh, very wise, person-like man. As my father told about him, without name, he told you know, sometimes in the peacetime you have very well trained, uh, such intelligent generals, and they lost, and then you have some people with whom it's difficult even to say the same tale for the dinner, and he's all the time winning, and the generally roman he he was just such man he was maybe was not very pleasant in the personal relations but he was really knew what to do in this time during the crisis sir we thank you for the call thank you glad to have heard from you we
1: will go quickly to another on 591 7200 good evening
12: hi there my question is with regard to kennedy um after the bay of pigs kennedy approved contingency planning for a second invasion of cuba i know that's not the same thing as an actual invasion and the assassination efforts intensified With Bobby Kennedy taking personal control over the assassination efforts of Castro. Was Khrushchev either aware or did he suspect either scenario, invasion or assassination, and did this play a partial influence in placing missiles in Cuba?
2: I think it was uh, the main influence on the placing in Cuba because he has no doubt that Americans would invade the Cuba a second time. I don't know what he knew and what was just his... Political uh, forecast.
12: Okay, because um, a lot of writers and historians are starting to blame Kennedy more for the outbreak. That did he? What was his insights into Kennedy's psychology? I know he debated him, and and apparently now we know that he he dialectically whipped Kennedy in Europe. I'm wondering what did he think of Kennedy's psychology? Did he think he was before the Cuban Missile Crisis? Did he think that he was brash, or that he would that this was part of Kennedy's character?
1: Well, this goes back to the impressions that uh, Khrushchev must have formed uh, after that. Uh, Vienna meeting in 61 um, what did your father have to say about Kennedy when he came back to Moscow
2: I think he never told what was the simple American impression that he was weak president it was impossible even to think that America can be weak because it's a great country mm-hmm. he told that he's different from the Eisenhower because he the just control his own foreign policy. So now he told, I know with whom I'm speaking. Before I did not know, I spoke with Eisenhower, but the real creator of the foreign policy was Mm -hmm. somewhere behind him. But from the other side, he told "And this young guy think that because he's American president, he has to command us what to do. And we will show him that we are also the great country and we will be treated as the equal.
12: So, um before I go up to all of you, what do you think of Kennedy's presidency dealing with Khrushchev? And thank you for taking my call.
1: We thank I, you, sir. Uh, let me ask that, uh, let me turn that to John Bushnell. Uh, did Kennedy play
3: Khrushchev properly? Uh, of course not. Um, K- K- Kennedy's foreign policy was not very successful. I, I really don't know. I- I'd, have, I'd have to do some reading to get, to give a, a really competent answer to that, to that question. Uh, but it's clear that, like uh, just about every other American administration, American presidents didn't really understand uh, how to deal with their sure. Soviet counterparts.
2: The same is now how to deal with the Russian counterparts. Uh, what's what's the
1: nature of the gap or the uh, the uh, hmm. the intransitive
3: communication? Uh, why, why do we get wrong? Why do we get them wrong? Why do they get us wrong? Well, in part, this was just just the the political structure of the Cold War kept pushing people in the wrong direction. But now,
1: supposedly, there's no longer there. Uh,
3: You know, there's uh, an awful lot of uh, leftover Cold War feeling. I mean, it's really inexplicable that uh, the Republican Party, for instance, thinks of Russia as the enemy or a potential enemy or a a threat. There still are an awful lot of people who look at Russia with suspicion. It's just completely unjustified,
2: hmm. and I think that when we're talking about differences and similarities, we have many similarities on the people-to-people level. But the main idea of the civilization is different, because the Americans based on the respect of the law, and the Russia that grew up from the Byzantine idea. They're mostly based on the goodwill of the leader. Yeah. And when we're trying just to, uh, at this time, just to present this respect to the law, the new uh, taxation code or something, Americans has no understanding that nobody really too much care about this. One of the famous Russian uh, writers, Soltekov Shidrin, mm-hmm. In 19th century, he wrote such words, all Russian laws are bad. It is only one good thing, nobody care about them. Still hmm. nobody care about them. It's, it's also behind all this misunderstanding and misperception.
1: Uh, we will pause once again for a quick round of commercials, and then back to the phones. There are now some lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, uh, try again quickly on 591-7200. For questions to Sergei N. Khrushchev, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, and his biographer, and to John Bushnell, professor of history at Northwestern University, five nine one seven two double zero, or if you're emailing, the email address extension720 at tribune.com. We return directly after these words
5: why trust an oil change for your ford lincoln or mercury to an any lube place when you can get it done at your ford and lincoln mercury dealership the people who know your vehicle best you get the protection that only a quality motor oil can provide stop in now to a participating Ford or lincoln mercury dealer for a premium motorcraft oil and filter change just 1995 or less premium motorcraft oil and motorcraft filter are both engineered and recommended by the ford motor company Nothing can protect your vehicle better. Now you get it all for just $19.95. Make just one stop for all of your automotive repair needs and get an expert under the hood. Quality care service only at your participating Ford and Lincoln Mercury dealer. See your Chicago area Ford and Lincoln Mercury dealer today.
10: Service includes up to five quarts of motorcraft oil and new motorcraft oil filter. Diesel vehicles may be extra. Disposal fee extra if applicable. Taxes extra. See dealer for details through June 18, 2000.
4: Senator Dick Durbin, could he be your next vice president of the United States? Spike O'Dell. Let me just... Cut through all the crud and ask you the most important question of the day.
0: Weekday mornings 5 to 9.
4: Would you trade Sammy Sosa for two frontline pitchers? No, I think I'd stick with Sammy.
0: Chicago's
4: News. Other than that, nothing's going on, isn't it, sir? <laughs> and talk. Remember the last time a young man from uh, Springfield, Illinois, made the trek to Washington, D.C.? Radio 720. It never came
0: back alive. <laughs> WGN. We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago. Now, here's Milton Rosenberg.
1: And we go directly back to the phones on 591-7200. Good evening. You're on the air.
3: Good evening. Uh, when your father came to power, he came to power with General Bulganin in the background. Why was this necessary?
2: Well, first of all, Bulganin was not more general than my father. Bulganin was the uh, politician who was received the military rank through the war, he had the rank of marshal before. Yes, was yes, because he was nominated at the uh, defense minister. I think because Stalin did not trust the real military at that time. And my father has a long-term friendship with Bulganin because in thirties my father was communist party secretary of Moscow and Bulganin was mayor of Moscow, and they just uh, had a good relations. If will not use the word friendship. Bulgarian was later eased out, though. Am I correct about that? Yes. Uh, then the Bulgarian he joined anti-Khrushchev coalition in 1957, and then later he was ousted. My father uh, tried, not tried, wanted to restore the relations in 1964, but he had no time because he had soon had been ousted of power himself.
1: Sir, thank you. Thank you. We're glad to have heard from you. And here is the next. Hello. You're on the air.
12: Hello. Um, I spent some time in Berlin, and I uh, would like the panelists to, to comment on the Berlin Wall, why it was built by the Russians effectively creating the world's largest prison, from a sense, when you really understand what it did. And my father, who's a bit of an apologist for Kennedy, told me that Kennedy allowed it to be built without challenge because he thought it would be the end of communism in that it would be a sign that they had to to wall people in to
6: keep the system in place
1: yeah uh, john when does the wall go up in 1961 and with what provocation? what immediate provocation
3: oh the immediate provocation is the continuing drain of skilled labor uh intellectuals from east germany from east germany it was an east german initiative. initiatives an east germans Economy was being badly destabilized by the uh, what at that time was the free flow of people out of East Germany
2: through Berlin.
1: So, Berlin was was, so was was the actual decision made by Walter Ulrich rather than?
3: I believe so. I believe no, the so, actual decision
2: had been made through the meeting of the old representative of the socialist country in the early August in Moscow, uh-huh. a secret meeting.
1: And not at your father's urging, but just with his approval. Is that it?
2: My father approved this because it was the idea was that it was this flood of the brains. Most graduated mm-hmm. students, new engineers, doctors. And if we will close this, then the economy in East Germany will went up and it will become much more successful than the Western and it will be such... Example of the prosperity to the West, which never happened, but the East German economy <laughs> did improve
3: um, you know, that
2: part was uh, right, but it never improved but grew. not became better than West German economy now
3: mm. the second part of the question, why does uh Kennedy not react uh, it's not true that he didn't react. Uh, he waved tanks at the uh, Russians, and the Russians waved their tanks back there was n- there was nothing that we could do to. Uh, prevent the wall from being built without starting f- fighting.
2: And they b- built this uh, wall on their territory. It was not on the territory of the Western Berlin. Um,
1: I'd like to read you a- an email that we've got. Um, according to Richard Rhodes in Dark Sun, the making of the hydrogen bomb, and this goes to a question I was raising earlier, what did it all cost, the nuclear arms race? According to Rhodes then, the nuclear arms race cost the U.S. three trillion. This includes the cost of developing the warheads, and the deployment systems. Uh, Richard, that is Rhodes, has been a guest on extension 720. That's indeed the case. $3 trillion also happens to be the approximate value of the current U.S. government deficit. Keep in mind the deficit includes interest payments. Uh, thank you for an interesting show, and so on. <laughs> $3, billion, uh, three trillion, rather, on our side. How would one estimate the cost on the Soviet side?
3: Uh, as Sergei said earlier, you can't really Just can't estimate do it. it. The, yeah. the, the way the CIA used to estimate it was by figuring out, well, what would it cost us to build what they have? Replacement values, yeah, you know.
2: re- well, yeah. Sort of value. Yeah, well, duplication value. I think it's mostly the same if we will compare with the size of the Soviet economy. We cannot transfer it in dollars or in rubles because at that time it was not value of this. Yeah. It was value of the resources in the ton of the cement of the... Steel, uranium, everything.
1: Here's a very interesting question, I think, from what, I've, what preview I have of it. Good evening. You're on the air. Good
8: evening. Fascinating program, Dr. Rosenberg.
1: Thank uh, you, sir.
8: George Cannon, I think, was one of the foremost architects of containment, <coughs> And uh, I'm wondering what Mr. Khrushchev would, uh, what his views would be about Mr. Cannon, and would he think he was uh, accurate in his views?
2: I don't think that in his long telegram he was very accurate. But, uh, and he was one of the architecture of the Cold War. But from the other side, I think that Cold War is an inevitable uh, transition in the history. So he was not so much wrong. Because, you know, all the time we solve our problems through the war. And then it was found that impossible to do this. But we didn't know how to uh, uh, work without the war. To deal with each other. So it was the same behavior but without war. I think the Cold War is a very good name for this transition.
3: Oh. Uh, I'd like to add just a little bit to that. Uh, the long mm. telegram is where uh, Kennan laid out his interpretation <coughs> of what he characterized as the Soviet system. Uh, and the, its fundamental mistake was that it took characteristics of the Stalin period, especially the late, the last Stalin years. And said this is the way the Soviet system is and if you use the way in which the Soviet Union operated, especially the political leadership operated in between 1945 and 1953 as your model for predicting how the Soviet leadership will operate in the future, then you've just got things wrong.
1: We recently had a guest on this program, Peter Gross, who's done a book about CIA operations in those years in Europe (coughs) and Gross uh, reveals that Kennan had a very large role in uh, organizing and planning the original CIA black operations, the hidden uh, uh, destabilizing operations in Western Europe and on into Eastern Europe, Uh, operations which largely failed most of the operatives, in fact, having been in Eastern Europe, having been discovered and executed.
2: Difficult to me to say this, you know, when you are just staying on the opposite ideological ideas, it is impossible to create the friendship, so you will have all this, uh, all the type of the operation, I cannot blame Americans. The same. I cannot believe the Soviet intelligence were there. But the
1: image of Cannon changes on the basis of these revelations, if they're correct revelations. Well,
2: they change a little bit.
3: Although uh, Cannon also—I haven't read the book, but I read a, a, long, a long review of it—and said that Cannon said later that this, this was a mistake. But that he read it, yes. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way, his long telegram was taken out of his hands by other people and mm-hmm. used to justify policies that Cannon later said. Uh, he didn't really have in mind. Now there's a debate about that among the specialists on Kennedy. There's a whole army of specialists on the T.S.
1: Eliot line. I, that isn't what I meant at all. All right. Yeah. All right thanks to the caller, and let's go quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air.
11: Hello. I wanted to ask uh, your guests uh, how safe the world is right now from nuclear war, both with uh, Russia and with the the notion that uh, nuclear. Weapons may have been stole may be stolen or sold from the Russian arsenal to to 'er ne'er-do-wells
2: Excellent question. I think that of course we let's say that during the Cold War where everything was under full control because in 1994 Yeltsin Independent, they uh, eliminated the independent structure was the control of nuclear weapons. Now we have these reports of the military that everything under control, but it is everything there the control. Time by time, we know that some generals sold this weapon, other weapons, but also we cannot over exaggerated the idea, the fear of this possibility to sell these weapons because. How we can use them? They're too big. You have no real possibility to deliver them. I believed in existence of these small weapons, that's so a suitcase, but they're, they're, they're alive about 10 years. So if they've been built in Russia in the Soviet time, now they, they will not work. So I don't think that it is really the big threat from the terrorism would the terrorists would really would want to attack one of the country It's easier to do using biological or chemical Weapons, or I don't know
3: Structures, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean both the, uh, the mm-hmm. There is a, some possibility, but it's generally exaggerated for tabloid purposes mm-hmm. We have these bombs wandering all over and the threat of so nuclear missile attack, accidental, purposeful by a lone gunman, by a terrorist state, it's awfully darn mm-hmm. remote.
1: Go back to Russia itself. Uh, Russia isn't going to attack the United States. Is Russia, however, going to stabilize and uh, begin to expand its economy and begin to function like a more or less normal European country?
2: It's very difficult to answer this question, because now Russia is trapped the same as the Nigeria trapped. They created this economy that based on the living together the criminals and the state. It's not criminal and the state, it's the same people. We know to whom belong Prime Minister, his deputies, the pre- who control the president. I'm not talking this time about Putin and current people in the power because I don't know about them. And so now we are trying just to turn to the productive economy and to take some power from these groups where they have very big profits from their activity and to lower the taxes. They just against this. And because they created the corrupt governmental structure, because they're paying huge Bribes, so for example, bribes of fifty million dollars on the level of the deputy minister is just average figure. Until you will not turn to the production, until we are not uh, booster the small businesses, it will be still no law there because the oligarchs are much easier to deal with each other's state without any law behind the scene.
1: Does that match your own view, John Bushnell?
3: Partly, but only partly. I, I think there already is stabilization. Uh, it's fragile, but there are industries. You can find industries, sectors that are have shown steady growth for a number of years that are responding to a market where there are many small businesses. I'll, I'll just give two examples. One is uh, publishing. Uh, there are now more books mm. published in Russia uh, than at any time in Russian history. That is, the publishing industry collapsed between 1990 and 1994. And since then, it's been growing steadily, more and more titles. It collapse it's collapsed
2: in 1998
3: uh, also. 19, but it recovered immediately. Recovered. It recovered not immediately. immediately. I know it, it's from my own book. Uh, they still did not publish I, I, it. I, I count numbers of books published as part of my research projects. Uh, the other industry that I think is indicative, perhaps more indicative, is the drug industry. Uh, the drug industry prior to the 1998 collapse was growing by 30% per year, it was also hurt. Uh, but then again resumed growth. Now, this is at the same time that uh, the market has been flooded by foreign drugs for the first time. Russians have more access to better drugs than they have ever had in their history. Both of these are industries that respond directly to immediate consumer needs. So where the economy does come into contact with consumer needs, it responds more or less the way free market models would predict.
2: Mm-hmm. i agree with you except one thing all these uh, successful stories is belong to the companies mm-hmm. who are not paying taxes they're avoiding paying taxes <laughs> and the war against the criminals had been lost by the prime minister primakov so but of course we have yeah. uh, it, it's it's not only negative examples then
1: maybe the way out of this um, confusion is to take the russian mafia so-called and make it the government
2: but they're now in the government. But make it yeah. directly the They directed the government. They, just, the they they controlled Yeltsin uh-huh. at that time and the most of these people. You know, it was never proved, but it was published in the one of the I think it was at the Lamont and the France several years ago that during staying in the power the Prime Minister Chernamirdin expanded his personal wealth from twenty Million dollars to five billion dollars through it was only bribes What's he doing now? He's now the uh, the chairman of the board of directors of the largest? Uh, in the world's natural gas company Gazprom hmm. by the way, one of the also successful uh, Russian stories that expanding their business they are now very much involved in the uh, West European market now they're building the huge project to supply the Turkey with natural gas and just building the gas pipeline under the water of the Black Sea. I think when so-called
1: criminals are that successful and their enterprises account for so much of what goes on in the national economy, uh, it's time to stop calling them criminals and see them rather as an alternative system.
3: Uh, I thought what you were going to say, suggest, is that they would become legitimate in the way that America's robber barons legitimized well, themselves. Well, I guess that's really what I am thinking. So some of that, I think, is going on. I mean, the uh, children are being sent to Western finishing schools. Uh-huh. The children are probably going to want to be more dignified. Some of the money will be, I mean, they can't, they have more money than they could possibly use. So they will uh, create. They, some of them are beginning to create charitable foundations.
1: We're in the Godfather two phase, going towards Godfather three. Oh, they
2: have the two groups there. One we can compare with the Robert barons like the Gazprom, Lukoil, mm-hmm. the Mayor of Moscow, Lushkov, because they investing their money in the country. But the other part, who really control the Yeltsin and try to control the current government, there, based on the stealing money. From their own enterprise in the state and transfer them to the West hmm. and they still the flight of the capital until last year was about two billion dollars per month so now it was some rumors that some money returning but it was no proof ab- about all the things and and this group of the uh, this so-called mafia won in the last elections because this Robert Barons. They just have their own candidate, Mr. Primakov, who lost.
1: Gentlemen, with that as I marvel at the high achievements of the Russian Mafia, uh, we pause for a quick round of messages and then directly back.
9: This message does not apply to the following people. Those who have unlocked the secret to time travel and manipulate fate for profitable business decisions. Those who have ESP and using their psychic abilities read the minds of the world's top executives each morning or those who have mastered the science of alchemy and are able to make large quantities of gold from cheap, common materials, like breakfast cereals or gravel. For everyone else, we offer these important words of wisdom. The Wall Street Journal. Every business day, you'll find the news and insight you need to make informed decisions. When it comes to understanding the markets, taking charge of your career, or making the most of your weekend, the Wall Street Journal can help. Pick up a copy of the journal at your newsstand today or get 13 weeks of the journal delivered for just 57 cents a day. To order, call 800 826 2200. That's 800 826 2200. Offer good for new subscribers in the continental U.S. only. The Wall Street Journal Adventures in Capitalism. Diamonds, the gift that lasts
6: forever. The Jewelry Exchange is a direct diamond importer with 10 factories nationwide. Certain diamonds are in short supply, but the Jewelry Exchange is such a high-volume dealer that their diamond cutters in Tel Aviv save most of these diamonds for them. The Jewelry Exchange has hundreds of D through H, VVS to SI quality 1 and 2 carat diamonds, diamonds most jewelers can't find. Most of their diamonds have GIA or EGL certs, and all are guaranteed the lowest price. 1 carat solitaire started at $5.99, 1 carat earrings 3 and 2 care tennis bracelet 349 you won't find a better price or a larger selection than at the jewelry exchange the jewelry exchange has thousands of diamonds and since they are the factory all diamond settings and adjustments are done while you wait and watch only the jewelry exchange has both a low price and double value guarantee what are you waiting for the year 3000 buy factory direct and save the jewelry exchange in elmhurst 630-530-9490 that's the jewelry exchange in elmhurst 630
0: We now return to Extension 720 from WGN Radio Chicago.
1: This is Milton Rosenberg. And we go directly back to your questions for Sergei Khrushchev and John Bushnell. After I note once again that the new book by Sergei Khrushchev is Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower. And that is published by Penn State Press. Um, It's worth noting also that if you want to get your hands on this book, and anybody interested in uh, more or less contemporary history will find this a very valuable volume, uh, you can buy it, of course, wherever they sell real books, or you can go to the website of this program. That is, go to uh, to WGNRadio.com, and then to extension 720, the pages for this program. And there you will find the monthly listings of all of our programs, and on the listing for tonight... Uh, You will see a um, reproduction of the cover of this book, and if you click on that, you will instantly be in touch with Barnes & Noble, from whom you can purchase this book at some 10%
2: discount. Yes, and uh, on Sunday, I will sign this book at the American Book Expo here in Chicago.
1: Yes. Um, which isn't open to the general public, I
2: feel. I fear. don't know.
3: But they told it. They will come there and yeah. sign, they say, <laughs> It sounds very Soviet to have a closed book exhibit. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, closed professional
1: exhibits occur here every week. But this is the major meeting I'm going to it tomorrow, as a matter of fact, of the book industry in Chicago, uh, in the United States, and it occurs once a year. 5917200 is the number. Some lo- some lines available on the board. If you've been trying to reach us, to make another quick try, and here is the next caller. Hello,
12: hi. Uh, I would just like to ask the panel um, why they think that Khrushchev survived the purges by Stalin. Uh, I know uh, himself he, he attributed it to his friendship with uh, Stalin's wife, and other people say his his closest asio- association with Kaganovich. And I was just wondering uh, what they thought.
2: first of Very interesting question. First of all, Stalin's wife. Uh, killed herself. That was alleluiava. Yes, alleluiava just in the very beginning of my father's career So these relations was maybe dangerous in the later time You know it is no answer for your question Because it's you are lucky would you not survive then you will ask why he was being as I say just uh, executed when they had defeated it was this Russian Soviet Army defeated in 1942 after near the Kharkov and then the Germans started their offensive to Stalingrad and the commander of the front disappeared, Marshal Timoshenko and Stalin asked my father to come to him to report and then for two, three days he just invited him every day and ask nothing and talking about the execution of the some generals of the first world war the who defeated and the tsarist army and then he asked my father what are you doing here my father told you ask me to come you have to go back and he told his right from stalin's dacha to the Uh, Airfield was the most dangerous time of his life. He told he can be catched just in that ride and told When I arrived to Stalingrad, I thought at last I'm safe
1: So we don't know why a very interesting question concerning your father's career is why in was it? 1956 he made the famous secret speech which revealed to uh, uh, The Communist Party at least originally uh, the crime
2: some of the crimes of Stalin but I told about this because my father was a believer that the communists will present the best life to the people. And he told, that you cannot live in the paradise surrounded by the barbed wire, we have to change our policy. And if we will change the policy without explanation, then these people will return and they will blame us. So we have to tell them before and they started this uh, liberation of these prisoners before the 20th party congress is it an
1: apocryphal story that at that party congress uh, a um, question was passed up from the floor written and unsigned and why comrade khrushchev or how comrade khrushchev did you survive
3: well, well it's apocryphal if it's said to have been at that congress it's usually presented as a I think a student meeting or something yes, like something that no? And
2: I I don't know is it apocryphal? I don't know it's, I never heard that it was uh, Really happened, but I did not know everything my father had so many meetings and he was answering all the questions written on oral, but I think the answer and the answer was that he asked with his voice who asked this question yeah. now then nobody Stand and he told stand up. Who asked this question? No, but stand he told you with the answer. Yeah. So I think it was just uh, in his character.
12: Okay. Thank you very much. We thank you, you, sir,
1: for the call. And here's the next. Hello. You're on the air.
12: Uh, good evening. I'm going to express a personal opinion, and I'm going to ask then your panel to uh, react to it. It's my personal opinion that the West. Um, bore a substantial responsibility for uh, Stalin's um, pact with uh, Hitler in 1939 by failure to confront the Nazi threat at Munich. When the Munich Agreement went down and effectively the Czech army and the Czech economy was given away for nothing, I think Stalin rightfully. Came to the opinion that he did not have on the West yeah. a credible counterplot.
1: Yes, that's an interpretation that has often been heard.
12: I'll hang up now and listen to you. All right, commentary. sir. We thank
1: you.
3: Uh, he, of, of course, Western behavior was one of the things that mm-hmm. affected uh, Soviet decision making. Uh, it's not, and there were things that happened after that. There were negotiations between England, France, and Russia, and the and British and the French were extremely slow and deliberate and refusing mm-hmm. to. Uh, come to any conclusion and the negotiations dragged out for months uh, but it has to also be said that when Hitler offered a pact Stalin leapt at the opportunity and the reason that he leapt at the opportunity was because he was convinced that there was going to be a war and that the Soviet Union was too weak to be in, um, involved in that war and it was better to stand on the sidelines
2: Yes, uh, i agree with this. I think that Stalin wanted to win the time He thought that the Soviet Union will be prepared for the war uh, the late 40, 1944 1943 and he calculated that uh, Hitler will never start the war be- before he would defeat England
1: Gentlemen, we only have a moment left uh, uh, a personal question if I may Sergei, um, do you now consider yourself an American rather than a Russian?
2: I, co- I consider myself a Rhode Islander.
1: A Rhode Islander. <laughs> you and your wife have taken citizenship, haven't you? Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But you know, when you're talking about uh, the living in the Soviet Union or United States, you're really living in the your own place. And for me, it was yeah. mostly Ukraine. And now it's mm.
1: It's been a memorable evening, and I thank you very much for joining us. Sergey Khrushchev is the author of the new book, Nikita Khrushchev and the Creation of a Superpower, that's published by Penn State Press. John Bushnell, professor of history at Northwestern University, is the author. Which of your books most recently?
3: Uh, well, the most recent book is uh, Moscow Graffiti, Language and Subculture.
1: Sounds like a fascinating subject, as a matter of uh, fact. I found it so. Who published that?
3: Uh Unwin and Hyman, a company that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And
1: tomorrow night, we will be talking about medical research and the way in which it has declined in recent years, according to James LeFanu, an English physician, who was one of our guests, together with two other American medical researchers. Until tomorrow at 9, a cordial good night to all.